I'm going to invite you to grab your worship guide and turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide where you'll find the scripture on which the sermon will be based. I'll invite Eleanor forward. She's going to be reading for us. Um, while she's coming up, I'll just, uh, just remind you, I don't, I don't tire of reminding you uh, what the gospel according to Luke is all about. It's this first century uh, document that's been passed down to us. It's based on eyewitness accounts uh, and other written documents uh, that recorded the life and ministry of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Um, Luke wrote it with a very particular purpose in mind. He wrote it in chapter one of his book to let us know both his ancient and his modern readers why he wrote it. He wrote it for this purpose. Uh, that we may have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. Luke is eager to build our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He wants us to know that this gospel and other gospels like it, Matthew and Mark and John, are trustworthy and sufficient to build our faith in Jesus Christ. This gospel message, that's what gospel means. It means good news. Uh, It's this message that to undo sin and all of the horrible consequences of sin in our world, God himself entered into our world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And through his death, his resurrection, um, sin and death are being overcome. In Luke chapter four, where we now find ourselves, Jesus has begun his public ministry. Uh, These are very early days. Uh, He has a few followers, not too many, uh, but his reputation through through his person, through his works is slowly growing. So here we go. I'm reading from Luke chapter four, verse 31 to 44. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because he knew they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Uh, Father, thank you for gathering us together in this place this afternoon. We thank you for speaking to us, Father, that we can hear your voice, we can be comforted and challenged and encouraged by it. So, Father, do that now, we ask, through the reading, through the preaching of your word. 
We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. The question for you is, is who is the most powerful person that you know? The most powerful person. A couple good candidates, I think. One of them is probably Justin Trudeau, at least if you're a Canadian. Justin Trudeau, who is our prime minister, he's got quite a bit of power. He's able to get things done. He can issue orders, you know, move people, move resources, and he does that through his legislative and, and governmental movements. Another very powerful person in our world that affects a lot of our lives is a guy named Mark Zuckerberg. Don't know if you've heard of him. He's the founder of uh, Facebook, now known as Meta, worth at least 100 billion bucks or so. And his power is derived largely from his, not only his vast wealth, but information networks. Zuckerberg is able to, through economic and cultural and informational tactics and maneuvers, um, issue orders, get things done, uh, limit or enable people to communicate in various ways. Another powerful person, maybe the dark horse candidate for us this afternoon, Pope Francis. All right. Um, this is uh, the head of the Roman church, which claims some 1.3 billion baptized members. At least on paper, Pope Francis is viewed as the vicar of Christ. That is, he is the earthly representative of Jesus Christ himself. And so for you know, apparently 1.3 billion people, what Pope Francis says happens. It gets done. For my kids, and if, uh, if there are other children in the room right now, the most powerful person you know is your parent, all right? Uh, despots and tyrants, we are, um, but we mean well. We, we try to do our very best. These are all very powerful, authoritative figures. Uh, again, able to get things done, issue orders, move people, shape your life and the world as you know it. But in Luke chapter four, we actually meet the most powerful person in the world. He's not a politician, not a church official, not wealthy by any stretch. This is Jesus, the traveling teacher from Nazareth, who comes now to Capernaum, which is this tiny, pretty insignificant fishing village in northern Israel. And he comes with a power and authority that no one has ever come across before in their time. Look at verse 32. The people of Capernaum, they're astonished. They're shocked at his teaching. His teaching is a word that possessed authority, authority like they'd never seen. Look at verse 36. After a healing that Jesus does, the people are amazed and they begin to say to one another, what is this word? For with power and authority, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And so we ask, what is Jesus's power and authority like? What kind of marks it out? Why is it unique? How does he use it? What are his goals? And so this will be our outline uh, for this afternoon. Jesus has ultimate power and authority. His power and authority is ultimate. And he uses it to set his people free so that they may serve him. So Jesus's power and authority are ultimate. He uses it to set people free so that they may serve him. We'll just kind of take that chunk of a chunk. So first of all, Jesus has ultimate power and authority. Ultimate power and authority. It's supreme. It's matchless. Verse 32 again um, the people are astonished at his teaching, specifically. His teaching has ultimate authority. We talked about this quite a bit last week. Uh, Jesus' preaching and teaching is powerful and it's persuasive. It, it, it surprises people. It fills them with, uh, with encouragement or sometimes it provokes certain people. Jesus, a few Verses before, we see him being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he preaches with the power of the Spirit, with, again, force and conviction. 
This isn't anything like the somewhat timid, half-hearted teachers that the people in Capernaum are used to, kind of like the professionals and the people who are just trying to get it through their day. Jesus is distinct. Jesus's word has the air of a king issuing commands. And so Jesus shows ultimate authority and power in his teaching. But really the main thrust in this section, as you can see, is that Jesus shows his ultimate power and authority in casting out demonic forces and disease and illness and sickness. That's the main force of this entire section. You see that in verse 33 through 35. That's where Jesus confronts a man in a synagogue, so like a local church uh, situation, and this man is, is affected. He is possessed by an unclean spirit or a demon. This man, we don't know very much about him, but he is overcome, he's overwhelmed, he's overpowered, outmatched, outgunned by a more powerful being than himself who, who dwells in him to such a degree that he is constantly harassed and harmed. We, we meet other figures like this throughout the gospel. But Jesus here, he faces off against the man, faces off against the, the unclean spirit. And with simply a rebuke, with a command, the demon leaves. Look at verse 36. It's very simple. Jesus says, be silent and come out of him. Jesus doesn't negotiate. He doesn't implore or beg the demon to, to consider leaving. He doesn't put forward, you know, for the demon's consideration, a few different courses of action he might possibly undertake. No, Jesus, like a king, issues a command and the demon is forced to obey. Now, unfortunately, due to movies like The Exorcist and pop culture, when we begin in the West to use language of, of demons or the demonic, we have a lot of baggage that kind of goes with it. And it's difficult to talk about demons without going into what might feel like the nearly comic or sensational or just, you know, outright unbelievable. But let me just present to you a broad, quick and dirty biblical vision of demons and the demonic. It's this, we live in a world where a cosmic unseen spiritual battle is constantly taking place. And the devil, the great adversary, all of his collaborators, demons, unclean spirits, they're constantly at work opposing God and all of God good, God's good works. They are a relentless, malignant, powerful, sleepless evil. Their work in history has been successful in infecting the entire human project. So there is no longer one person one family, one nation, one institution, one church that has been left unaffected by their work. And this has led uh, human history to where, where we're at to this day. Each of us find ourselves trapped in a network of evil, of death, of destruction, of pain, of suffering that is outside of us and beyond our control. And then when we look within ourselves, we see the same kind of work within our own hearts. Uh, when we look around us, at our neighbors and our coworkers, we can see that each one of us has been harmed in body and soul. And ultimately, we are powerful, powerless to resist this. And if you, if you really look at yourself and you really consider the world around us, you consider what's happening in Europe right now and in other places in our world, this biblical vision of the demonic isn't actually too hard to believe. In fact, if you take a good hard look at our world, it's difficult to make sense of it apart from this vision. Like how else do you actually make sense of senseless war, of, of genocide, of the most brutal events of abuse, of slavery towards the most innocent, of constant death and destruction that has gone unchecked for centuries and centuries of, of recorded human history? 
Consider your own heart, the anger and the lust and the greed that just bubbles under the surface at all times, causing bitterness and division within humans. This is the biblical and realistic account of the world, that there is this unseen, ongoing spiritual battle taking place all of the time. But of course, when, when we read passages like this, when we consider this worldview, there's, there's great hope because this power that's in the world isn't ultimate. It's certainly greater than us, but it is not greater than Jesus. He has ultimate power and authority. And at a word from Jesus, they flee. In verse 38 through 39, we see Jesus moving from demons to disease or sickness. And he has the same ultimate power and authority over disease and sickness. We meet Simon's mother-in-law, and she is very sick, perhaps on, on the verge of death. She too is overcome. She's overwhelmed. She's overpowered by a force that's stronger than her. It's not a demon in this case. It is a sickness. But Jesus treats uh, the sickness with the same disdain that he treats this unseen evil. He, he issues the same kind of kingly command uh, that he did over the demon. He simply says to the fever, come out of her. And it does. And we see just kind of in verses 40 through 41, the same thing happening, but on a larger scale. Jesus repeats this act of power and authority over demons and disease. A crowd of, you know, who knows how many, they gather outside of Simon's house. And Jesus, it says, laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Jesus's power and authority is, is, is demonstrated, at least in the text, by, by showing that Jesus doesn't have to use magical formulas to deal with disease and demons. He doesn't have special words that he recites. There's no um, mystical substances that he applies. There's no learned techniques that were passed down to him. Jesus does this. He speaks. And these great powers of destruction, demons and disease, they just flee. They're gone. What the man who had an unclean spirit and uh, in Simon's mother-in-law, what anyone really, who is overcome and overwhelmed and overpowered by forces outside of the, their control, strong and sinister forces, what they, what they most desperately need isn't a good teacher who will come and give them good moral advice. That's not really the need of the hour for them. What they don't need is for somebody to come to them who is just simply kind but totally powerless. What they need, they need somebody who is more powerful than them and more powerful than the forces that seek to oppress them. And they find that in Jesus. That is the comfort in this passage. Jesus, not demons, not disease, has ultimate power and authority. Second part of our outline. And he uses that power and authority to set his people free. Jesus uses his power for this particular purpose. Jesus, if, he, if we knew he was powerful and that he had authority and yet he didn't um, use it uh, for our good, it would be of no comfort to us, Right? We might meet very powerful and authoritative people. Again, we mentioned Trudeau and Zuckerberg, your parents, the Pope, and, and they may have a lot of authority, uh, but if they don't use that power for your good, then it doesn't really matter to you. In fact, it could harm you. And maybe you're familiar with that quote uh, from Lord Acton, how power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men, he says, are almost always bad men. Knowing that Jesus has power and authority, it's, it's not really comfort unless we see here that he uses it to a particular end, to liberate his people. Uh, if you think of power in the Lord of the Rings, I have to bring in Lord of the Rings quotes as, as often as I can, but if you're familiar with, with the ring of power, this is an opportunity for its wearer to gain ultimate power and authority. But at the same time, there is an inevitable twisting and darkening as they make use of this power. 
power is too much for them. There's not one figure in this world that can wear the ring without it, being, without it destroying them. And ultimate authority and power, if it were given to us, um, were it given to me, it wouldn't really help us or the world. It would destroy us. Like if you think that you could handle ultimate power and authority, you do a really good job of ruling this world, ruling individuals and countries, then, then you are mistaken about the extent of sin in your own heart. Uh, you don't know yourself. You don't know the human condition well enough. And thankfully, Jesus is not like us. He is not under the authority of demons and disease uh, like we have all been touched. But because of his great love for his people, his pity for our weakened condition, Jesus in his mercy came to people who were enslaved, who were under uh, the power of forces stronger than them. And Jesus uses his power and authority not to enrich himself, not to enslave others, but he uses it to set his people free. I have to do a little sidebar on this because I think there's a couple things that we should notice because uh, it's interesting how in the gospel according to Luke, we're gonna encounter demons and the demonic over and over again. This isn't like the first time, it was the first time, but we're encountering it, but it will not be the last. And so we need to kind of consider a few things about this doctrine that we actually don't talk about very much in our, in our world. I want you to see in verses 34 and 41 that the demons accurately identify who Jesus is. Um, that he, you know, he's, he's not some traveling preacher man as many might take him to be. Um, if you look at verse 34, the demon says, very rightly, Jesus of Nazareth is the Holy One of God. He's saying that Jesus of Nazareth is this set-apart servant. Uh, Verse 41, uh, multiple demons, they cry out that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and that he's the anointed one sent by God um, to lead and to set his people free. So there's a few things that we have to say. The first is, whatever demonic possession in demons are and, and people affected by them, it's not mental illness. It's clearly not mental illness. I, th- I think in the West, we're tempted to think that in the ancient world, they just didn't have the categories that we have. And so they viewed mental illness as demonic possession. We know it's not uncommon for people uh, with mental illness like schizophrenia to, to have uh, religious and spiritual delusions. That's not uncommon. Uh, a person believes they're possessed or that they themselves are God or Jesus or a prophet or that they have some special spiritual knowledge. But what we see here in Luke uh, and what we see elsewhere throughout the Bible is not delusion and confusion, but a, a, a clarity to spiritual reality. This is the exact opposite of confusion or delusion. These demons evidence a deep spiritual knowledge. In fact, a deeper spiritual knowledge than many of the people who are around Jesus. They don't recognize who he is, but this man and these people who are overcome by demons, they do. So first, it's not, it's not mental illness. Second, Religious knowledge is not all that grand on its own. I think, I think this just points us to that. Simply having this special knowledge about Jesus, which these possessed people uh, do, um, isn't sufficient. It's not actually very helpful. Uh, the demon had many of the things that we want to have ourselves. We want to know Jesus rightly. Uh, we want to have the scriptures memorized. Um, we want to attend church. Uh, you know, faithfully. And this is actually all the things that this demon seems to have, right? He's, he's, he's at church on time. He's at the synagogue. You know, he's maybe well-dressed. Maybe he stays up, stays after late to help pick up chairs. Um, but, but biblical knowledge and attendance to church, uh, without it seeping deeply into your heart, your will, your conscience, changing the way you live, making you humble and obedient to Christ, uh, loving your family and your neighbors, 
the poor. This kind of biblical knowledge is demonic. Um, there is much to know about the Christian faith. You ought to read your Bible, to have it memorized, to, to treasure it. Uh, you should know great books of theology. You should read them and discuss them. It's all very good. But orthodoxy, that is right knowledge, apart from orthopraxy, right practice, is demonic. So, so when we look at demons, we can say, okay, this isn't mental illness. Second, that religious knowledge, whatever measure they have, it's not all that grand on its own. And third, a little obscure, but I think it's very helpful. The demons are forced to keep the messianic secret. The demons are, keep, keep to force, are, are forced to keep the messianic secret. I hope you notice in both instances, when the, when the demons reveal their knowledge about who Jesus really is, Jesus rebukes them, sharply reprimands them. He scolds them to keep quiet. If you look at verse 41, it's emphatic. And this, again, happens often in Luke, so it's important that we note it. Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Again, a pattern that we'll see often, so often through Luke and other gospels that theologians give it a name, the messianic secret. Jesus forbids the demons and even sometimes his own disciples from revealing Jesus' full identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Christ. And it just, you know, asks the question, why? Like, why would Jesus want them to be quiet knowing who he is? There, there's a few good answers to this, but I'll give you the main one. The demons are forced to keep the messianic secret because Jesus' true identity can only be understood from the foot of the cross. You can only truly know who Jesus is and what he has come to do at the foot of the cross. You cannot know Jesus sufficiently from his miracles. Seeing Jesus doing these incredible deeds, casting out demons, healing diseases, is an insufficient picture of who he is and what he came to do. Apart from Jesus' suffering and death on the cross, his resurrection for us, and for our salvation, we misunderstand who he is or why he came. Throughout the Bible, we see that miracles like this are authenticating signs. They're things that are pointing to a greater truth. We see that signs and miracles seem to be really uniquely situated to this age of Christ and his apostles. If we are overly fascinated with Jesus's healing ministry, his, his, his exorcism, and yet we, we are so uh, focused on this that we exclude or we forget about his saving work on the cross, Jesus will tell us, he will tell the demons to be quiet. You're misunderstanding who I am. There is much more to come. Okay, that was the sidebar. <laughs> so back to our outline. Jesus has ultimate authority and power and he uses it to set his people free. Why? So that they may serve him. Jesus uses his power to set people free so that they may serve him. What, is, what does freedom mean to you? If you were to be set free from all that overwhelms and overpowers you, that controls you, uh, what would that freedom mean? For some people, it means just like getting out from under the oppressive force of work or financial pressures. Uh, for freedom for many people means freedom from responsibilities. I don't want anyone telling me what I have to do. A freedom from all forms of obligation, things that I just, I must do. If I was truly free, I wouldn't have to do anything. Uh, freedom from obeying authorities. I wouldn't have to listen to anyone in the government or my boss or anything like that. If, if I was set free, I, I just wouldn't have to do any of this. 
But Jesus, we see something very different. Jesus uses all of his power and authority to set his people free, not so that they can live lives uh, of their own choosing, but rather for a very particular purpose, so that they may serve Jesus and worship him all their days. And we see a picture of this, just a snapshot of this, in the picture of Simon's mother-in-law. Simon, also known as Peter. We haven't been introduced to him yet uh, formally, but he is Jesus's, one of Jesus' first disciples. This mother-in-law, of whose name we don't have, she is set free by Jesus. And then look at verse 40, uh, 39. In verse 39, Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, this might sound like, like a maternal instinct gone haywire. Maybe you have a mother like this. She's got a raging fever. It's gone, and she's like, I better get the biscuits going. Like, would you like some tea? I'm glad that you're here. And Simon might be there like, relax, mom. Like, just take it easy. <laughs> you were almost dead a second ago. Uh, you've been through a lot. Just lie down. But, uh, but people who have been set free by Jesus, we see throughout the Bible, serve Jesus. They are saved to serve. They are brought out of bondage and slavery, slavery to malevolent forces uh, uh, and into the service of Christ. God's people who turn from their sins and they trust in Christ, they are given freedom, not as they define it, not to please themselves, but rather to please and serve God. We'll eventually get to the story in Luke 8 of, of another healing that Jesus does. This is setting free a man possessed by, by many demons. And here, this man who is healed, he wants to go with Jesus immediately. But Jesus gives him his marching orders. He sets him free, and then he serves Jesus. Jesus says to him, return to your home. Declare how much God has done for you. And the man went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So we see here somebody who is, who is being set free and then immediately is set to the service of King Jesus. So that was our outline. Jesus has ultimate power and authority, and he uses it to set his people free so that they may serve him. And so the question for you, Christian, is how have you been using your Christian freedom that Christ has bought for you with his body and his blood? Have you been using that freedom to serve him or to serve yourself? Christ has set you free for a purpose, so that you would serve him with gladness, to live a life not simply to please yourself, but to please the one who rescued you. We're going to do another sidebar because I think it's important. If you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not sure that you're a Christian, you haven't given yourself over to Jesus, you haven't received Christian baptism, uh, um, I want you to know that now that there's not a choice that you're making between living in service to Christ and, and some sort of neutral ground where I'm just going to kind of be on my own. Uh, we don't have the option of either service to Christ or freedom to ourselves. Rather, what we see here and, and throughout the scriptures, the only realities that exist for humans in a world like ours is either service to Christ Jesus or oppression under the devil and demons and forces that are stronger than us. Uh, that, that old Bob Dylan song, maybe nobody listens to Bob Dylan, but you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. This is just what we are as humans. Again, it's difficult to not bring pop culture images into our mind when we talk about what a life lived in slavery to the devil looks like. But, but as we said before, we reside in a world where a cosmic unseen spiritual battle is constantly taking place and we are outmatched and we are outgunned. There are beings that oppose God's good work in this world 
and, we, and they indeed do have power and authority. And we are trapped in this network of evil. We are ultimately slaves to death, destruction, and pain that is beyond us. It's outside of our control and our powers to resist. And unless Jesus comes, who has ultimate power and authority, to set us free that we may serve him, we remain bound. There is not another option. You may live a totally ordinary looking life. Uh, you may attend church like this man in, in Luke 4. Uh, he may have, may have been married and had a family, but unless Christ himself, the only ultimate power and authority that is strong enough to rescue and deliver you comes to you and is your hope and your rescue, you remain in slavery. Jesus has come for this purpose. Listen, it is his joy to come to you to set you free, to serve him. Uh, he can be trusted. Hide in him, trust in him, hope in him. Let's end here by looking at verse uh, 44. For, verse 44 ends where really verse 31 began. Jesus continues to travel. He continues to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He goes to other synagogues and other regions. Um, and he continues to do this work that we saw here in chapter four, setting people in other towns free and into his service. And what struck me is that the mission that we see Jesus doing here, it continues on through this day. It really hasn't slowed down or stopped in 2,000 years. Because we see with power and authority, Jesus himself continues to preach the good news. Uh, that is, in his, in his person and in his mission, he's come to undo sin and all the deadly consequences of sin. But how does Jesus do this today? How does Jesus continue to preach the good news to new people he does it through his church. He does it through his people, through the community of people that he has set free and into his service. Matthew 28, it, it has a very famous commissioning passage of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, who after the cross and the resurrection, immediately before he ascends, gives his church their marching orders. I'm gonna read it to you. Just listen to what Jesus says to his gathered disciples, what he says today to his church. Matthew 28, Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus tells his church, he tells us this afternoon, what kind of service we're to be all about. Now that we have been set free by Jesus, what are we to do? We are to make disciples. That's our life calling. That is our work. Urging people to faith, to baptism, to obedience, to all that Jesus commanded. Again, this isn't simply knowledge transfer uh, that we're involved in uh, any more now than it was then. Uh, religious knowledge on its own is not all that grand. Rather, what we were seeking in our homes, in our workplaces, among our friends, amongst ourselves, is obedience to Christ and service to him forever. This is our hope every week here at worship on Sundays. We are in a world overwhelmed by evils and forces beyond us. And many people in our city are oppressed and under the influence of these forces. But because Jesus is who he is and that he has come for us, we have hope for them. We can offer to them freedom. Jesus commands his church. He commands us to be involved in this work. Not everyone's called to be a preacher, but all of us are, are called to be part of this work, to make disciples, as we say here, of, to a thousand generations. 
to share the good news of Jesus with our friends, with our coworkers, with our neighbors. And this might seem an impossible task unless Jesus were with us. And this is the promise that he gives to us. I am with you always. All of my power, all of my authority, they go with you to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to be astonished by your teaching, that we'd be amazed by your power. Father, I ask that you would help us to entrust ourselves to your care, that we would admit uh, that we do not have strength in ourselves to keep malevolent evil forces at bay, that we require your power and your presence in our lives. Father, I pray that the freedom that you have given us would be employed in your service for the good of the glory of God and for our neighbors. Father, we ask that you would fill our church with your spirit, that we would continue on this mission of telling the whole world about your salvation. Would you help us to start here and now in Halifax, in this church? Father, would you make us disciples of Jesus who will love him and serve him all our days? We pray that all in Christ's name. Amen.